This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Can you give me an overview of um, Gaddafi and his leadership? <laughs> so, um, where could where should we start? I would say that uh, when we approach the the leadership of Muammar Gaddafi, we're talking about forty two years. So it is really you know when you ask for an overview of that, it means that we. We would need to cover 42 years of history, and that's not something we're going to do right now. But one of the things that needs to be said right away is that every single time the topic is approached of Libya in, a, in the Anglo-American mainstream media in, and also the at the policy level and the academic level, Libya is uh, always reduced to the figure of one man, Gaddafi, who's constantly depicted as a rogue uh, dictator, completely cynical, uh, completely out of his mind. You know, we, re we remember the famous phrase of uh, uh, Ronald Reagan, who called him as the mad dog of the Middle East. And, and the Libya as a whole, uh, under uh, the leadership of Muammar Gaddafi, is presented as a rogue state, one that wants to challenge all the boundaries uh, of the peaceful, uh, liberal international order. So in my work and what I'm trying to do is to basically start from here. Why? Because the first we need to unpick these major layers that create the fog. And once we unpick one, all of them, then we can really start touching exactly what Libya was about, what the leadership was doing and what the government was trying to achieve. So. These are three fundamental layers that we really need to, you know, sweep away of, of, from our table because they're going to come, they will come back constantly, constantly and constantly. And they also formulated that kind of, they created the baseline also for NATO to intervene in 2011. Because once again, once you reduce an entire social formation to the idea of, and the figure of a one man, and that man, is constantly depicted as crazy, then you, you don't need, you just need what, 10 days from the start of the protest in 2011 to the no-fly zone and eventually the bombing. Whereas when we are having an overview of a 42 years period of historical time, we will see that Libya has gone basically from a post-colonial, anti-colonial revolution in 1969, very radical, that was trying to reclaim its own sovereignty over the national resources, using oil to challenge a certain way to see the world, a certain vision of the world. They were trying to regain the right of development from an economical, cultural, and political perspective. They found a backlash, there was a backlash, a, a confrontation with US imperialism and the geopolitical forces, which made Libya change partly some of its policies, approach more closely Africa, and this is something that happens in the 90s and the 2000s, but then we, we are back to 2011 when NATO intervenes and the country is destroyed. So this is, uh, I think, if you would ask me that question, that's the way I would reply. Are you able to describe Libya before Gaddafi? Yeah. So what we had was first uh, 30 years of Italian colonialism starting in 1911, which uh, had uh, literally decimated the Libyans uh, in concentration camps, even before the Nazis. Uh, we are talking about the figures around 500 to 800,000, up to 1 million people killed in these concentration camps. Com and Italy was, uh, Libya was considered the so-called Italian fourth shore. So we are sending those uh, people from the south who have no jobs in Libya to take over these uh, fertile areas in uh, an agricultural land. What happens is that we know what happens to fascist Italy is defeated with the Second World War. The country is split in three, in three different parts under France, Britain and the US and then unified by the UN, the United Nations, in 1951 under the monarch, a monarch called King Idris, 
who rules from 1951 up to 1969. And uh, the rule of the, mo the, the state itself, the configuration itself, as you can imagine, was, uh, you know, uh, artificial in a way that was put together by Western powers at the time. And the rule of the king was heavily influenced by the interest, uh, the geopolitical interest of Western states, especially, you know, Britain at the time and the US. How did Gaddafi come into power? So, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, it, it is fascinating to see, see, when you read some of the, the Food and Agriculture Organization, which is uh, a United Nations, uh, you know, branch, uh, focused precisely on food and agriculture. If you read some of the reports that come out during the 1950s, Libya is considered basically a state that has uh, the least possi future possibility and potential of development up until the discovery of oil. Oil changes everything. Mm. So during the, uh, the king, the, the monarch, uh, king, uh, the oil is discovered, and obviously the the livelihood and the social conditions of the population change. But there is a lot of corruption. The 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 diwan, the royal mon, the palace is not distributing the oil revenues. There is a uh, there is discontent among the population, and at the same time, we are in an historical time in which a fundamental ideology is spreading throughout the entire Arab world. It's not just the time of decolonization, it's the time of pan-Arabism, which basically tells us what? That there is a, a vision for the unity, or for Arab unity, for all those countries speaking Arabic language, and that this unity is necessary to fight against a settler colonial state in the, in, in the region, which is Israel. So in that moment, while many of the countries surrounding Libya and especially Egypt, which was the fulcrum of the Pan-Arab ideology, are all pushing towards this vision, Libya is uh, politically aligned with the West, so decides not to fully intervene in these conflicts or to support the Pan-Arab vision. And at the same time, there is increasing social discontent by the population. So it is from the military forces that, uh, uh, within the army itself, from the, it's a group, in fact, of young officers, 27 of them, including Muammar Gaddafi, that the 1st September of 1969 decide to launch a military operation called uh, Al-Uds, Al-Quds, Jerusalem, in reference, in honor to the Palestinian cause, and... Uh, militarily overthrow the government of the king. It's a bloodless coup d'etat because in a way uh, the population was already expecting a change and at the same time there was the, they had that pan-Arab support that the king did not. So this is how Gaddafi comes to power with his revolutionary command council. What were some of his goals and ambitions for Libya? They change. That's the first answer, in the sense that uh, at the start, uh, some of the major achievement and the major goals that uh, the Libyan government sets is to basically turn Libya into an Arab Republic, uh, fully supporting the Pan-Arab project sponsored by Gamal Abdel Nasser. So in the first year, Libya turns into a copy of Egypt. The idea is to support the Pan-Arab project to renegotiate, to nationalize all the foreign assets and companies within the country, including oil, obviously, and renegotiate the, uh, the, the agreements with the major oil companies. In fact, it was Libya in the 1970s, together with Iran, with the Tehran agreement, to renegotiate the, 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 the sale and the revenue coming from oil in favor of the oil producing countries. These are, uh, so there was an idea to regain uh, Libya's sovereignty over national resources, try to produce a, a sort of uh, auto-sufficient, self-sufficient model of uh, development within the country that did not rely on a 
uh, on a, it was not dependent on imports from abroad. There was an idea of uh, produce, you know, of having a sort of a, a regional vision. So reinvesting the revenue of the oil not abroad to a, with with a capital flight, so money going outside of the country, but using this money within Libya and regionally. And part of this also is to support revolutionary movements within Africa and the Middle East, and also in the West, as we will know with the IRA, sending them money to fight against what was considered the forces of imperialism, uh, reactionism, and Zionism. So did he see pan-Arab, what did you call it, pan-Arabianism and pan -Arab pan Pan-Arabism and Pan-Africanism, did he see those two as allies? So, uh, this, is, uh, this is exactly a question that is, this is a very important question, because I don't think, I think he did see them as aligned, but uh, at the very start of the revolution, there is a preference or a hope that uh, the Pan-Arab project will be built in a much quicker way than a Pan-African project. There is a switch, though, and this switch takes place uh, throughout the 80s and the 90s. So if up to the 1980s, Libya is supporting different revolutionary movements, but its uh, main vision is towards a pan-Arab project. By the 1990s, we have Lockerbie, which we can talk about more if, we, if you want and the imposition of sanctions, of UN multilateral sanctions on Libya. This is a key moment. Why? Because uh, in the 1990s, it's not just the imposition of sanctions on Libya. It's the collapse of the Soviet Union, it's the rise of the, rise of the Gulf countries regionally. So the death of a certain type of pan-Arab vision for the, for the Middle East, and the realization of Muammar Gaddafi and the leadership of the of uh, and the government of the Libyan government that uh, we are not going to find any more support in the among Arab states, but uh, our place actually we should switch our vision of development and regional solidarity towards Africa. And in this in this moment, uh, who's going to play a key role is going to be Nelson Mandela as well, who will visit uh, Libya breaking the embargo on the country and showing how much support actually, you know, the brother leader Muammar Gaddafi had in Africa at the time. So it's a gradual process that takes place. And I think uh, uh, the, the, the Libyan government uh, solidifies, cements its own vision towards Africa starting from the 90s onwards, whereas before, is more oriented towards and aligned with the Pan-Arab project. You mentioned Nelson Mandela. Tell me a little bit more about their relationship. So basically what we have is... Uh, uh, Libya was uh, absolutely involved, as I told you, with a different type of... Uh, not involved, it was funding. It was actively providing logistical, su logistical support, weapons and money to different revolutionary groups or groups that in the eyes of the Libyan, go Libyan government were challenging the military and political supremacy of uh, Western imperialism in the region, meaning in Africa, in the Middle East, in the south of the world. South Africa is inevitably one of the key places where uh, money and logistical support is provided by the Libyan government to the, to the revolutionaries. What is important in the case of, uh, uh, of Nelson Mandela is that uh, the two really remained uh, great friends for uh, until the end, in fact. Uh, Mandela remained, will be remembered as somebody that stood alongside uh, you know, what was happening in 2011 when NATO decided to bomb and destroy Libya. So it's, uh, it's an organic connection that develops uh, since the 1970s 
and culminates in the 1990s with the project of the African uh, of the African Union insert in 1999 and continues uh, when Libya is trying to break out of the sanctions and Mandela is really key in this process because he's one of the few leaders that is actually supporting openly in such a moment when Libya is under embargo uh, the the leadership of Gaddafi and of the Libyan government and he and he continues to do that in 2011 you know the when uh, when NATO intervenes in the country just for clarity when when we refer to revolutionaries in Africa we are talking about uh, countries becoming more sovereign is that right yes when we're talking about revolutionaries, we're talking about what in the eyes, because it's very eclectic. There wasn't mm. an ideology. They were not just supporting, say, Marxist, you know, in a certain places. No, they were supporting groups that they were trying to gain their own independence. So to be, you know, to regain their sovereign. So they were that they were supporting the national question in the face of occupation or imperialist control this is why the ira and also the other groups that they they that they were very ideologically different but they were all support they were trying to achieve the same goal so we know that gaddafi nationalized some of the sectors what were some of his key policies uh, first, I would say that uh, some of the key policies that obviously you, when you decide to bring them up, particularly with the Libyan from a diaspora, is that most of the time you'll find out that uh, some of them have been uh, uh, dispossessed of the land. And this, uh, the, the policy of land redistribution was a key policy, for example, launched by the Libyan government in the early stages of the revolution. Uh, basically, the idea was uh, following uh, this uh, somewhat uh, banal, but uh, more uh, uh, more uh, more useful as a guide rather than as a as an ideologically rigid book. Uh, these policies were based on the Green Book. The Green Book basically uh, allowed to uh, to Gaddafi and the leadership to set you know, the main uh, ideological blocks that would guide the Libyan government in implementing certain type of policies. One of them was land redistribution, uh, which was distributed freely to the most advan uh, disadvantaged classes at the time, then uh, and taking also from uh, the rich landowners. Another policy was the famous Albaitli Sakini policy, which is the house belongs to those who live in it. So the abolition of rent. So there was uh, those who live in the house own it. You cannot rent a second property. So that created a lot of discontent among the the richer people, the middle class, the bourgeois. That they were, you know, they were that they decided many of them to leave the country and become opposition. For instance. Other policies, the creation of uh, uh, public supermarkets that they would control the prices of the main sub uh, substances, good, uh, uh, sorry, the main, uh, uh, the main goods, uh, particularly when it comes to food. So there was a, a state-led uh, uh, capitalism, we could say, so, uh, in which they were trying uh, to provide for the masses while at the same time developing the, a consciousness, a cultural consciousness, which would allow the masses to take control and charge of the factories, which in fact did happen with the major limitations, but it did happen. And so the idea was to, yes, provide to the population, but also make them self-sufficient in the process. And did it work? So... The very first three policies that I mentioned, land, rent, and the abolition of wage. Another one was the abolition of wage. We are not wage earners, we are partners in work. That was the slogan that was launched. Did they work? Some of them did. To a certain extent, their amount of wealth redistribution that took place within the country was, uh, uh, was, was you know, 
was unique if compared to the previous historical stages and political governments that Libya had. Did they allow the formulation, you know, the establishment of a self-sufficient society? Yes and no. Why? Because first and foremost, there is uh, one of the key problems was, uh, you know, the difficulties to, to, you know, to establish a sort of a cultural consciousness. When you have a revolution, there is always the idea that you need to build a new society, a new man. That's the idea. It's fundamental. You have to break with the past and you have to try to build a new vision. That really, the, that passage was really difficult. And what the problem was that society, while the idea was to democratize society and have everyone involved in the making of political decisions, the difficulties founded in creating a certain type of political and cultural consciousness was uh, uh, then, uh, uh, how do you say, uh, uh, pushed for the need to build the so-called revolutionary committees which were groups that they had the, the task of, uh, uh, how do you say, uh, instill the revolutionary consciousness within the masses. But that, you know, created the blocks of powers, you know, of political authority, which were not ne unnecessarily democratic. And also at the level of the political economy, the, they struggled to build the functioning factories and industries. For example, uh, you know, as the cement industries. Libya became re remained tied to oil revenues and they continued to import most of, its, most of the necessary goods. And, and this was a major problem. In all this, in all this I, have to, I, I really have to uh, highlight this. The internal limitations cannot be understood vis-a-vis -vis the constant attack under which Libya was geopolitically. Because at this stage, Gaddafi was already an enemy of the Anglo-American West. Yes, yes, absolutely, yes. By that time he was, in particularly the, the support for the Palestinians was key. You can see that uh, one of the you know, there were probably three main preoccupations that the U.S. administration had vis-a-vis -vis Libya uh, during the time that spans from the 1970s up to the 1990s when they imposed the sanctions. And these three preoccupations are, first, support for anti-colonial movements in the, in, uh, in the South, Africa especially, and the Middle East, with a specific focus on the Palestinians. Gaddafi was giving so much money and logistical support and military uh, support to the Palestinians. Second, the proximity to the USSR. Even if they were not ideologically aligned, inevitably the interests of Libya and the USSR tended to, you know, to, to be, uh, you know, to cross each other much more than they did with the US. And finally, economic nationalism. Libya wanted to break from the dependency vis-a-vis -vis the international political economic system and try to build its own model of development. So that, uh, precisely because of these three preoccupations, you have uh, different types of uh, measures taken against the government to fight uh, yeah, these policies. You've suggested that his leadership uh, created a type of mixed success versus failure in the country. Often when we, when we talk about Libya, we hear people um, uh, elevating his great successes, such as the water, the water yes. systems, um, his attempt to uh, create a gold-backed currency, his, his avoidance to, to American central banking. Are those all valid? These are all valid, but this is where, you know, this is where we need history, because, for example, the gold comes really late. This is a switch that, uh, you know, when we look at Libya and we look at the 2000s, you are absolutely right. Yes, he was trying to create that. And thankfully, I have to repeat this every time we have an interview on Libya and about specifically when we mentioned the gold, we have to thank Julian Assange on this and WikiLeaks. 
you know, for having allowed us to, to know about, you know, these emails and what actually the Libyan government was trying to do. And the U.S. administration and the French knew, but they would never re release it to the public. So that type of policy comes later in the years, in the, in the 2000s. Uh, the water, you are absolutely right. The great man-made river, in fact, I forgot to mention, it was one of the most, uh, of the biggest infrastructural projects that Gaddafi and the Libyan government really built for the population. I mean, again, a mixed results because uh, when we, the, you know, the mainstream would go and tell us there was a dictator, it was crazy and all that. On the other side, I am not also completely uh, happy when uh, they say in 2011, Libya had everything for free, everything was available and all that. It is true to a certain extent, but that would not allow us, it doesn't allow us or enable us to explain why so many Libyans felt for a US NATO led intervention in 2011. We, so we need to, you know, because there were aspirations to create a country which looked like Dubai, and Libya didn't look like Dubai in 2011, for many Libyans, for example. And this is something I talk in my book. And so there was this idea that we can do better than this, we want a better country. But if compared to Tunisia or Egypt, Libya did not have any poverty. The level of corruptions have nothing to do with what is happening right now in the country. And you didn't have homeless, homeless people, which now it's everywhere. So absolutely, you know. So what you're saying is that when we talk about Libya or Gaddafi, we must approach it not with a one or zero, but with more nuance. I think so. Because also as people who are trying to actually understand the achievements and the difficulties and struggles of a revolutionary government, we really need to be able to have uh, uh, a sharp critique of what went wrong. I mean, knowing that there is constantly a geopolitical threat of war on the country, constantly. From 1970s, US unilateral sanctions, bombing of Libya in 1986, uh, the whole facade of Lockerbie, which leads to the of UN sanctions from 1992 to 2003, and in 2011, the country is bombed again. It's, uh, it's 42 years of uh, constant threat of war. Chat to me a little bit about Lockerbie and what led up to that and what actually happened. Lockerbie is a key moment. Uh, it is, uh, you know, I don't know. It is... Uh, we could even as go as far as say sometimes that it could be a false flag attack on the country. Why? Because uh, basically what you have is the explosion of uh, a Pan Am flight in 1988 on the skies of Scotland. 280, 300 people, about 300 people die in that explosion. Okay. Two years earlier, Ronald Reagan uh, had bombed Libya with the direct aim of killing Gaddafi. In fact, he bombs his own residence in Tripoli, and he tries to bomb also his own residence in Benghazi. Gaddafi doesn't die, but obviously Libya comes out uh, from that moment, the government, the ambitions are readjust because, you know, America has literally bombed you, it's trying to kill you. So in 1998, this uh, plane explodes and initially, uh, the accusation by the international community go towards uh, uh, Iran. In fact, one of the plane, a civilian plane, an Iranian civilian uh, civil plane had been bombed just a year before or the same year by the US, or towards a Palestinian group that had been sponsored by Syria, and they were trying to do an operation, an hijacking, which ended up with a bombing. This continues for the first three years, at least. So everybody is looking into uh, Syria, Iran, Palestinians groups, okay? By the fourth year, everything, the, everything is switches, and now the focus becomes Libya. Libya is the culprit. Libya is the behind this uh, bombing. It's interesting enough, and I really suggest watching uh, the documentary of uh, 
of, uh, of uh, the Maltese cross of Lockerbie uh, by, and you will come back to me, the, the, um, the, the director of, uh, of, this, uh, of this BBC documentary who dies, the Maltese double cross Lockerbie by Alan Frankovich, who also has a beautiful uh, series on uh, Gladio, the NATO infiltration of Western Europe after the Second World War. Uh, and what it shows in the in the in the in the documentary is that the moment the bomb the the plane uh, uh, collapses, the CIA on the same night is already on the on the spot where uh, tampering on the evidence of this explosion. Of course. Now, <laughs> this is 1988. By 1990, the thing is, this is the, this is where the whole problem lies. That they find. One explosive, actually what remains of the device, and that device is used and, uh, by, an F by an FBI agent, which later on will, will be accused of tampering with evidence, with other cases, to accuse Libya. Not just uh, one or two Libyans individual, but the Libyan government. Now, there is no trial. That's the first important thing that we have to remember. There is no trial, there is no proper investigation, there is just ev this evidence that says, oh, well, this type of device was sold to the Libyans, so then the Libyans must be behind this explosion, this uh, attack. You have a 10... And the same, uh, in the meantime, sanctions are imposed on the basis of this. Why? Because uh, the US and Britain, they tell Libya, you need to, uh, to release the two individuals we are accusing of this bombing to, to Britain, to be trialed in England. Gaddafi doesn't want to do that. He says, I am not, according to international law, I don't have to do that. I can trial them in my own country. And he uses the Montreal Convention to make this argument, which makes complete sense, but it's completely refused. The United Nations is blocked. By that time, you can imagine the USSR, which provided some sort of counterbalance to the US, is gone. So the US can do whatever they want, whatever it wants. So sanctions are imposed. At the same time, Lib what they're telling Libya is, Uh, we are not going to remove the sanctions until you decide to renounce to terrorism, provide us uh, the two suspects, suspects, and so on and so forth. In the meantime, at some point, uh, you know, they find basically a solution around this, which uh, brings them to be trialed in the, in the Netherlands and uh, in a so-called neutral country. And after the whole uh, trial, what they find is that they cannot tell us that these two Libyan individuals are actually, you know, they were actually acting first with the sponsor of the government in the back. And second, the only evidence provided to accuse this Libyan is a Maltese shopper who remembers seeing them and who's going to be paid one million by the CIA to make that statement in the court. <laughs> this is not fantasy. I, am, I, I swear this is not fantasy. This is <laughs> This man will later take uh, citizenship in Australia and disappear. Tony Gauci, that was his name. They, so, I, I mean, it's all documented in the book anyway, but... Uh, So what you see is that an entire country and its own population is, is, uh, is, uh, is uh, sanctions and an air embargo is imposed on an, an entire country and its own population for 10 years on the basis of what? Of, you know, very uh, weak, light evidence, which were nonetheless used to discipline Libya to make Libya understand that you cannot act as you wish. Was Libya behind Lockerbie? We still don't know. Actually, no. What did, so, Gaddafi, what did Gaddafi himself say? 
about that? They were completely aware that something was taking place and uh, there is a constant back and forth. Even if you look at the speeches, uh, if you look at the UN uh, you know, Security Council uh, discussion, that Libya was unfairly treated during that time. They had nothing to do with this involvement. And his son, Saif al-Islam actually, says in a later interview that we had nothing to do and we knew we had nothing to do with this. But we had to pay the price vis-a-vis, you know, in order to be rehabilitated within the international community. Yeah, it definitely looks like a false flag. But it was the moment used to, as you know, we've seen this over and over. We might mm. see this in Ukraine at some point. Uh, to mobilize, there is an attack. There is a moral panic. The moral panic creates an immediate decision, a political decision, which is major within the UN Security Council, which then leads to bombing, sanctions, or whatever else. And the same thing happened in 2011 with Benghazi. Well, we saw the MH17, I think it was, the plane that got shot over Ukraine. That was also a false flag. So these things definitely can happen. They do happen. They do happen. We, uh, we shouldn't be blind to the fact that, uh, you know, there, there is a military theory around it. You know, we, we, they're called false flags for a reason. Mm. You create a situation to, to disorient the enemy and, the, and you create propaganda around it. So... We're getting very close now then to 2011 with the Arab Spring. And of course, uh, that was a very big thing. It was. It was. It was for the region and it was for Libya, especially. Uh, You know, this is where uh, in, in such a moment... I, I call for the, the kind of nuance that I, that I used probably before when you said, you know, to try to understand the achievements and the failures and all that. I am sure that there were genuine, genuine grievances. There were contradictions within Libyan society. There were contradictions within Tunisia and Egypt. But uh, the speed at which the pace at which these contradictions unfolded and took the shape of a NATO-led no-fly zone and bombing of the country, that is another thing. That tells us that there was then a plan to use these contradictions and destroy Libya. And a similar plan was trying to be used in the case of Syria, but then it played out very differently. So what you see in Libya just a quick recap for those who are listening and, you know, just in, on the 17th of February, uh, people go on the street and they are uh, uh, protesting against the arrest of a lawyer who represented the families of those who had disappeared in a massacre or what it's called, you know, uh, yeah, a massacre in a prison in Libya in the 90s. A lot of people had died, about a thousand, some say two thousand. Uh, and there, and uh, basically, the government was not providing them with uh, with information on the fate of the of their relatives. So at, at that time, the lawyer is arrested. The people go in the street, and they use this opportunity, considering what is happening in Tunisia and Egypt, to voice other grievances as well, which go beyond the arrest of the lawyer. Okay. In the same time, these uh, protesters they start taking weapons and control of, uh, they try to take control of police barracks, uh, military weapons, which is exactly what's happening in France right now. Exactly. Now, following that pattern, if uh, our dear French philosopher Bernard uh, Henry Levy, who jumped on in Libya to, to, uh, to make this propaganda for a NATO intervention, we didn't see one word for the French protester by the same French philosopher in the case of Paris. So, what happened? Anyway, I'm sorry, I'm just going on a rant here. <laughs> sorry, Jeremy. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's absolutely fine. By all means, go ahead. <laughs> so, like, you know, direct me if I'm going too much. But anyway, uh, so what happens is... Uh, you have this protest by 17th of February by 
mid-March, which is what, a month? No, actually, in 10 days, a National Transitional Council is already formed, which is what? A so-called rebel opposition government is already formed, sponsored and recognized by all the major Western powers. 10 days after the recognition of this government, a no-fly zone is imposed on Libya. So in the, in the span of one month, you already have decided the fate of that country. For me, the pattern goes, there were contradictions within society, the West jumped and even created more contradictions in order to pursue a certain type of plan, which was regime change. So was this a revolution? Was this a regime change operation? It was a regime change operation. Isn't it interesting? Sorry, I'm now I'm going off on a on a rant here. But isn't it interesting that whenever we talk about regime change, it's always the Anglo-Americans trying to implement it. Name any country, whether it's Libya or Syria or Yemen or Russia. We could just keep going. I don't see China wanting to create regime change in the West. I am sorry, Jeremy, with this kind of statements, you're not going to find a job in the U.S. State Department. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> so it really depends on what kind of career you're looking for. <laughs> in 2011, the Anglo-Americans launched an attack on Libya. Now, this, this is a pretty pivotal moment, isn't it? Yes, it is. So what led to that? What were the reasons? It's interesting, you know, because uh, by 2003, Gaddafi is so-called, is, uh, you know, we can use the word rehabilitated in the international community. The Libyan government itself is participating to this famous rendition, U.S. rendition program, where, you know, there are all these uh, terrorists being shipped from one country to another under the, this umbrella program called rendition program. And some of them, believe it or not, which were given by the Britain to the Libyan government, all of a sudden, they are, and they were terrorists in 2006, by 2011, they are rebels and revolutionaries and funded by Western powers. Why did they decide to go in that moment? It's, uh, I think in, in that case, if I would have to answer, I would have to zoom out Lib from Libya and think about the state of decline, which is... Uh, economically, uh, culturally, morally of the Western world and the attempt to somehow recolonize a certain part of the world to make it, uh, you know, more ideologically and politically aligned and especially on the face of what you were talking about before, especially on vis-a-vis uh, -vis the fact that uh, Gaddafi was trying to build a project of Pan-African unity a gold back, uh, uh, yeah, a gold back currency for Africa. The possibility also of creating a, a military, you know, uh, a, a unified military. Uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, how do you say? A unified military for the African continent. Gaddafi was the f Libya was Libya was the first one to uh, fund the launch of the first satellite for Africa which liberated the African countries from, to, from having to pay for that technology to France and Western countries. So if uh, this, you know, I had different conversation on this uh, and I had this brilliant comment by a colleague of mine where she told me, if we look at what K Libya and Gaddafi was doing in, two, in the 2000s is what basically we would nowadays call multipolarity. He was trying to, you know, yes, to diversify his alliance, not to rely on the West anymore, trying to look in different places. Bricks. For example, yes, go ahead, John. No, BRICS, I was going to add to that. Yes, yes, BRICS, yes, yes. And uh, there is this famous infrastructural project, uh, which, was one of the, which was one of the visions of the government, uh, it was to build uh, a train line in, uh, on the coast of Libya, Half of it was going to be built by, by the Chinese and half of it was going to be built by the Russians. 
So this is just to show what? That there was the, the awareness that we need to diversify our political vision and alliances, and so somehow a capacity to read the spirit of the time that Gaddafi had and the leadership had in that moment. But there were also contradictions within the leadership itself. And this is important to mention as well, because the fact that so many government affiliates switched side in 10 days, it's also revealing that they were comfortable enough to be bought and sell their, themselves out to the West. And they were envisioning a different type of project for Libya. A Libya closer to the West, a, a Libya that looked like a Gulf country. So more like Saudi Arabia or Dubai, more politically and economically aligned to the West. But that was a sort of, uh, you know, that's a trap. We know how this ended. And then he was assassinated and, of course, the West celebrated. Dictator has now been removed from the world. Unfortunately, yes. I mean, we remember the, the hysterical laugh or probably the most genuine laugh of uh, Hillary Clinton when she was interviewed and uh, and she... And she started the interview saying, we came, we saw, he died. She literally was happy, I think, in that moment, because uh, the US government had reached the goals that, that they, they had set, regime change. It was brutal. It was an absolutely brutal moment, not just for the man, you know, because I always, I, I, that's the way I, at least I approach my interpretation. It's, uh, it's always a question of history, you know, the individual never really transcends the possibility imposed by historical time. That's the way I see it. And I think that uh, that brutal killing is not going to help Libya, you know, to reconcile to, with its past. It just creates a major break. It's representative of a violence that was brutally unleashed on the country. And Libya is still paying the price for this. What sort of price is post-Gaddafi Libya paying? First and foremost, uh, in 1969, when the Libyans, uh, when the Revolutionary Command Council overthrew the king, one, you, you asked me earlier about the policy, but you see that I forget about things. One of the major moves that they made was to expel the Italians, which were considered, you know, part of the colonial past, and shut down two military bases one belonging to the British and one belonged to the US. In, uh, it was probably two years ago when one of the UN representative, uh, Stephanie Williams, which was uh, at the head of the UN SMIL, the, the special mission for Libya, said that 20,000 mercenaries are currently present in Libya. Each militia is foreign, backed, and supported by external actors. In other words, Libya has lost its national sovereignty. With that, has lost its national security. And that, you know, I think these are probably what the price that Libya is paying still nowadays, vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the past. What sort of legacy do you think Gaddafi left um, on the Libyan people. How do you suppose they see him today? I think they see it. Uh, there is, uh, you know, when when I when I did my research, I was interviewing people a lot, and I actually worked with people who had left the country post two thousand eleven, not and they weren't necessarily diaspora. What I saw was a society. I mean, at least the picture that I could that I that I depicted in my book is one of a society that was split, entirely split. There were people who really considered the Gaddafi and his legacy as a legacy of dictatorship in Libya, belonging to, you know, anachronistic, we are beyond this, we don't need this anymore. And another half that was really appreciative, this even critical, but still capable to see what, uh, you know, the Libyan government and the, the, and the leadership of Gaddafi had done for Libya and for the region. 
and I'm talking about uh, Africa, especially in this case, the African continent. Right now, uh, well, you know, considering that the main factions that have established themselves in power in Libya right now are of uh, Islamist-backed nature, and uh, and there are some secular forces, uh, but even uh, a force like uh, Colonel Haftar, who's not Islamist, but is, is secular and supports the army, he was a prisoner of war taken by the US during the Libya, during the conflict in Chad, and who has American passport and used to live in Virginia, close to Langley, the CIA headquarters. So right now, the balance vis-a-vis the past, I think is, is a negative one. I, I, would, I would say that. Do you, Mattia, do you think, this is a tricky question, do you think Gaddafi was a great man? It's a tricky question. I will tell you why. It's uh, I th- because as I told you before, I mean, Gaddafi did not act beyond what was possible on the table. He was always able to operate under a certain historical circumstances that allowed him to make certain steps. He was a good strategist, I think. I think he was able to make certain good moves, but uh, there is also a legacy of errors, I think. But on the balance, I think history will do justice to what he did for Libya. That would be my balance. What, what do you think will be that justice? Uh, the anti-colonial revolution, the fact that uh, nobody knew Libya. I mean, at some point, Libya becomes a country because of this uh, vision that the leadership had for the country and became so, you know, it became, you know, it was put on the map. It will be remembered uh, for the great man-made river. It will be remembered for, uh, you know, for what it did to, it was trying to achieve for the African continent. And also for some of the moves, this kind of, you know, a sort of forerunner of multipolarity that now we're talking about in a way. But he never acted alone, you know, the the historical conditions always allowed him. He was just, you know, you need to be able to use them in a way. But I think that uh, he incarnated, embodied, especially in the 70s and the 80s, the spirit of its time, and he did it in the most radical way. And I think this is uh, that uh, this is where the Libyan historiography, the whole commentary on Libya, will need to really go through the past and rethink all this in a much more positive light that it's currently depicted. Uh, we know that the West really does not like the idea of multipolarity, and since history repeats itself, do you think leaders like Assad and Putin? and Xi Jinping are quite aware of this? I think, I think they are. I think they are. Uh, I don't think Assad was in 2011 as much. Probably became more aware. Because don't, let's not forget also uh, how many of the Arab leaders uh, after what happened to Saddam Hussein in 2003, we're all laughing at Gaddafi at the Arab Council when he was saying, each one of you can be next. And Assad was one of them. Uh, I think that uh, 2011 was a a turning moment to understand that uh, there is a a tide. The tide is, is changing. And unfortunately for everyone, it's becoming much more, uh, it's taking the form and the shape of a military conflict. And I think this is also where uh, certain moves were made by Putin, for example, in Ukraine, but also by Putin in in Syria. So there is the awareness that uh, it's not enough to dialogue anymore. We might need to go militarily in order to make ourselves more assertive 
which is scary, I have to be honest. Um, I guess I want to get your insight, your prognosis of Libya. Where do you see Libya heading? It's a very difficult question, I have to be honest with you. Uh, first, I, I struggle to plan on a long term my own life. So due to the precarity in which we live, that uh, I really struggle to provide a prognosis for a country in the next, let's say, 50 years. What I'm seeing, I can tell you what I'm seeing right now. And what I'm seeing is that Libya is being integrated into the world, into the political economy of the world, in a much more different and much more violent way than it used to. Libya now is being, its resources are extracted, but not just its resources, its people are extracted. They are killed directly. Libya is being integrated in the circuits of money through war, through weaponry, through killings, through surveillance infrastructures, because it's constantly in a conflict. So there is this idea that we need to reproduce conflict, security. And this is where the think tanks do really a perfect job in this sense, because they reproduce this narrative that, you know, we need peace, but we are in conflict, but they never go to the source of where, how did this conflict start? They never take the structural problem into the picture. It's always a local problem. Why are Libyans fighting? What are the interests from abroad? Why are we, what did we reach this point? It's hardly asked. So I think that uh, this is one of the paths in which Libya is going. But there are also, in, I mean, the chaos is, uh, I don't know if that's the right word now, entropic in a way. You know, there is always something that, that kind of that can create a, a new order. But uh, you cannot read Libya uh, divorced from Ukraine. So the answer doesn't lie there. It can be one of the pieces of the puzzle for eventually a different picture of the world, but we can't just predict the future of Libya without thinking what's going to happen in Ukraine or what's going to happen to China and Taiwan. What lessons can we learn then from Gaddafi? Many. Uh... We can definitely learn the lesson that uh, the question of African unity and Global South solidarity is central to move forward. This is something that, uh, and, uh, and it's not a solidarity that can be only based on uh, military weapons. It needs to be a project, a financial project, an economic project. If you want to undo and delink from the Western-controlled hegemonic sphere and economic sphere, you need to create alternative political and economic project. And I think it's leaving us that legacy. And that, uh, and that is one of them. Then I would say there is, uh, if we, I mean, historically there are many. There is also the capacity of a man to realize that he needed to switch strategies throughout time because he starts by supporting you know, revolutionary groups in the south of the world militarily, by the, sanction, by the time the sanctions hit, it drops violence because he knows he's going to get a regime change. So he starts to build projects of African unity. So also a capacity to work with the contradictions, the, the political contradictions of society, which is not some, something that everybody can do. But there are also, you know, other things that, uh, that uh, he leaves us, and uh, also, you know, as any good political strategist, he's made uh, some really brilliant, uh, you know, uh, maneuvers, but he also made mistakes. But I think we can learn from both. Okay, how can I follow your work? Uh, Follow me on Twitter with the uh, uh, hat Capasso Matt, C A P A S O M A T. Buy my book if you want, Everyday Politics in the Libyan Arab Jamairia, published by Syracuse University Press. 
and you know and follow germ warfare uh, podcast <laughs> If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.